1: Granger, for the ones who get it done. This one gets interesting. I'll often comment on events that are occurring in the news, where there's some historical context to add. And I'll also address questions from the listeners. But it's rare that the two combine. And I get a chance to tell a pretty interesting story as well. Real quick, I want to talk to you about uh, the new podcast that I've launched, Vice Presidents of the United States. It's up on Apple Podcast, it's on Stitcher. You can also get it at vicepresidents.libsyn.com. Slowly but surely, I'm going to be going through the vice presidents. We've got four vice presidents up there now that we discuss. He was a man out of place and perhaps out of time. Born in London, son to a wealthy merchant, John Tunstall was now in 1878 in the middle of New Mexico where he had established a large ranch. The Englishman astonished his family with stories of how he was now buckskin clad roaming the wild American country with one of those hats and boots and spurs. Originally, the young man had been sent by his father to participate in a store that his family owned part of in Victoria, British Columbia. But Tunstall tired of that and fought with his father's business partner. He was also bored with the society of British Columbia with the church dances and Victorian dressings of that world. He spoke his mind, and that earned him a rebuke from his father's business partner, who promptly wrote Tunstall's father a letter about his son's bad behavior. He answered that letter, and his father didn't necessarily take the partner's side, but Tunstall still knew that he had to leave. And he first did, to America, to San Francisco, where... He started a sheep herding business of his own. And then, when that didn't work out so well, he heard about fortunes being made in New Mexico and went there, in Lincoln County. No doubt that brought new arrivals to the area. Texans, former Union soldiers, former Confederate soldiers. Tunstall established a ranch and a store in the town of Lincoln, in Lincoln County, and got into business with a fellow named McSween. Both actions were greatly respected in this area. Other cowboys and ranches were glad to have a new competitor. The enterprise of Jim Dolan and Murphy, the huge cattle rustling and money loaning business, known because of their complete centralized power over the county as the house. They were glad to have some other alternative. And it's not that John Tunstall was an angel either. In the many letters he would write back to his family... He would speak of being able to claim one day, maybe one half of every New Mexican's dollar for himself. But for now, he was satisfied to play the good guy to wear the white hat, to use that Western motive, and satisfied that he had made it at all. He knew the land was wild. He knew the tempers were hot. But he wrote his family in London. In regards to getting shot, I don't expect it. I shall live to realize my schemes. He'd run against the House several times, and he'd find that they and their connections would be a big problem. The sheriff, for instance, of Lincoln County was aligned with Dolan and Murphy and was routinely intimidating him at his ranch and his store. Got to the point where Dolan himself challenged Tunstall to a duel. But Tunstall, being a proper Englishman and not abiding by American dueling rules simply refused. He was a good horseman, he knew, but a poor shot. But after that challenge, Dolan knew to surround himself with other people who were good marksmen, who were rough cowboys, who could herd, but also might serve as some protection. Among the people that he hired was uh, a younger man, nicknamed uh, Kid Antrim. As much as was known about him, he was an orphan, ...who could handle his weapon very well. After some encounters and little intimidations and nasty scenes and things like that... ...Tunstall was still writing to his parents in London that... ...the last battle is over and there is time to settle down and write you. The letter would prove wrong. In February 1878, Tunstall and his men were out ranching... ...heading from the Tunstall Ranch to the town of Lincoln driving a herd of horses. Tunstall's tired. This has been a long run. He's asleep at the saddle. When Kit Antrim comes running to him, and another rancher, too, awakes Tunstall and says, follow me. Tunstall wakes and sees about five armed men and horses approaching. He doesn't quite know, but it's a posse from that corrupt local sheriff, and it's an irregular one. Among them are outlaws and criminals. Tunstall decides to confront them. He's urged by his workers to run, run, get away. But Tunstall decides to confront them. And as he approaches, he's shot with a rifle. Then the men take his own pistol and shoot him with it, and then kill his horse. Tunstall's men are watching the whole thing from a distance, far enough away. To keep from danger. They keep going into town. And once there, they tell this story. And Tunstall and Lincoln, where people already like him for his ranch business and a store, becomes a martyr. And a group is formed to revenge this death. Starting with the employees of Tunstall. This begins the Lincoln County, New Mexico War. A state of near anarchy as neighbors, will fight each other, McSween's side, the business partner of Tunstall, or Dolan Murphy's side. In the course of this, 100 people at least are killed. The sheriff who set up the force that killed Tunstall is ambushed himself and killed with his deputy. A legend is born out of this story and less known. But just as important for now, the events in New Mexico reach the White House and begin important precedents that are still alive today. In 2010, relatives of the Dunstall family visited the area where, of their uh, ancestor's ranch where he died. The canyon still bears his name, Dunstall's Cabin, and while developed now, Google Maps uh, viewing this area still finds the much of the stretch, perhaps as it would be, a spotted mountain area, three tree stumps marked with red arrows designate the spot where Tunstall's dreams ended, just two years after he left British Columbia. The family from the u k has visited that site since nineteen twenty nine when movies made their relative famous. Though those movies portray Tunstall wrong most more often than not. They portray him as an older man. No, he was a boss. But he was just five days shy of his 25th year on his death. The movies get it wrong, but the movies really aren't about him. The movies are about his employee, William Bonney, or Kid Antrim, who we know as Billy the Kid. And he'd go on to revenge his employer. He'd escape from prison, outgun men at saloons, and become a Robin Hood like figure in the area. It was said that Billy came from New York City, but no one could ever exactly find where or how old he was. When he was captured by the new sheriff, Pat Garrett, he was sentenced to hang. As the guards are leading him up to his cell, He scrambles, steals a gun, and kills two guards and escapes. This all happens while Sheriff Pat Garrett wasn't in town. And since locals like the kid, Garrett had a lot of trouble finding him. Eventually, he hears that he might be in an old, deserted fort. So he goes up there, and this is Garrett's account. Garrett writes a book about this whole experience. Garrett... Searching houses in the area happens upon him in the dark in one of his friend's houses. He hears him say in Spanish, Quienes! Garrett knows the kid's voice and pulls his revolver and kills him. Because of uh, Billy the Kid's legendary status, Garrett becomes a controversial figure. Theodore Roosevelt will temporarily honor him with a marshal's post. He'll have his own problems... And eventually, he himself will be shot. These Western stories are the stuff of countless paperbacks and articles. I need not much talk more about the Wild West. As technology changes, just 30 years after Billy the Kid's death, he's once again famous. He's featured in films, the first silent one in 1916, which will report the story over and over again and give us the image of of Billy the Kid, so famous in the local area in Lincoln County, by words, maybe by face, a couple of photographs, not many, a new life. Where the Kid and the larger Lincoln County War of 1878-1879 gets political is when, after a period of anarchy in this county and in the territory of New Mexico generally, it reaches President Rutherford B. Hayes' desk that there's a problem here. And the real problem is that the anarchy goes beyond just the feud between Tunstall's business partner, McSween, and the Dolans, and the House. And it gets to be known that you can do anything in Lincoln County. So outlaws from all over the place are coming there and committing crimes and causing problems. Hayes orders the U.S. Army to get involved, and troops are sent from a local base to restore order. But the local commander, Dudley, does business with Murphy and the Dolans. They provide beef for the U.S. troops and for the local Indian reservations under the care of the U.S. government. Um, Like most people doing this trade at that time, they're providing a low-quality beef and charging a lot for it. But it's business, and the U.S. troops are sympathetic more to the House, to the Murphy and Dolans. Dudley sends out a, a U.S. Army Patrol of, of 35 to help the local sheriff. And when they approach the area where they think Nick is and where they'll nab him, something stops them in and they can't move forward anymore. It's not guns. It's not the weather. It's not some hostile force, some Indian tribe or something like this. It's an act of Congress. A message has come from D.C., a telegraph to the base, strict orders. There is a new law, and these troops, this party of 35, has to return to the base, mission unaccomplished. Indeed, while the events are going on in the West, Congress, now controlled by Democrats, and influenced by Southern Democrats in the region there, are livid about the use of federal troops in the South to prop up Reconstruction governments. To obtain a successful inauguration after his disputed election, Rutherford B. Hayes agrees to remove troops from the South. The Democratic Congress wants to put a lock on this. It's 12 years after the end of the Civil War. The army has sustained governments, governors in some of these states, uh, reconstruction governments. It has preserved to some degree the rights of the recently enfranchised African-American men, um, and the army has battled the Ku Klux Klan. They put language in a military appropriations bill to this effect. Whoever, except in cases and under circumstances expressly authorized by the Constitution or Act of Congress, willfully uses any part of the army or the air service that's added later 1956 as a passe comitatus or otherwise to execute the laws shall be fined not more than $10,000 or imprisoned not more than two years or both this is put into an appropriation bills and Hayes seeking reconciliation in the country and also needing those appropriations signs it Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit mfm.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American
0: Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.
1: Very early on, this act that will become known as the Pase Comitatus Act, from the get-go, creates some consternation from the chief executive. Soldiers had to stand by and watch women and children killed? The government is a good deal crippled, he complained. Eventually, Hayes's attorney general will write an exception to the law so that troops can be used to restore order out west in a neutral fashion, and Congress, mostly wanting this law to remove Reconstruction governments in the south, has no objection to this particular usage. Dudley, the local commander, is forced to pull this particular patrol back and can't use his troops to go hunting around the countryside now, it appears. But in a gunfight that'll happen in Lincoln City, his troops, allegedly there to restore order and be neutral, start helping Dolan's side more than McSween. They provide cover as Dolan Murphy's men go in and do the shooting. And McSween is killed in that firefight. It won't take long. In 1894, and Grover Cleveland will again ignore the act when he suppresses a railroad strike in Illinois. Now, in 1894, the governor of Illinois is a socialist and does not want to have troops in his state. He supports the strikers. Cleveland sends them in anyway. And in that strike, the Pullman strike, this is where Eugene Debs is going to make his, his name the army not only quells the disturbance, they will run the railroad during the emergency. So I think here, passe comitatis, passe comitatis, passe comitatis, you hear it very much said because of that Latin word, which is, you know, power of the community, power of the county. Um, the word actually refers to the thing. It refers to the posse that you're starting in an area where there's no law someone will form a posse comitatus almost a militia to enforce the law because it has that great, it's a great sounding word it has this kind of sacred status doesn't it and we also know that we have a long american aversion to standing armies obviously we have one now we didn't when the republic was founded so it's thought that the concept of posse comitatus is relating to early americans and their skepticism about standing armies I think it's fair to say that it, that could be a secondary note. One of the reasons it was easy to adopt, say, um, one of the justifications for passing the bill is that it's rooted in that American aversion to standing armies. But there is no original American concept of posse comitatus. It occurs during the Reconstruction. Certainly, on several occasions in American history, President Washington leads a force into Pennsylvania to quell the Whiskey Rebellion. The Calling Forth Act of seventeen ninety five said that troops could be used at the request of a state. Jefferson uses the uh, order Jefferson orders the Army to help enforce his embargo during his presidency. Andrew Jackson threatens the use of US Army troops when South Carolina threatens to nullify a tariff. Franklin Pierce confronted with violence in Kansas, orders the Army involved with no such Thought of any constitutional limitation. There's no posse comitatus expressly stated in the Constitution. And so that's something to consider. Yet the law exists. It's still the law of, ex- of the land. It has been adjusted a few times. We mentioned the 1956 adjustment. There are a few exceptions in the law. Uh, clear exceptions to posse comitatus include National Guard troops operating under state service, another exception. Pursuant to presidential power identified to quell domestic violence, the president has the right to use the army to quell rebellion within the United States. And some smaller exceptions, a use of the member of the Judge Advocate Corps as a special prosecutor presentation to a grand jury or assisting a prosecutor. They're allowed to do that. There's exception for the Coast Guard, and there's exception for the Navy when assisting the Coast Guard in pursuit during a search and seizure. The frustration over the law, the comments that Rutherford B. Hayes, the first president affected by it, made in 1878 have been echoed in some form or another by many law enforcers or would-be law enforcers over time. Secretary of War Newton Baker, fearing domestic attacks during World War I, suspended PCA during that time. More recently, the military and the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11 expressed concern about the limitations of passe comitatists, As a 2003 Military Law Review article stated, today's terrorists can strike at any place. Even before 9-11, though, William Sapphire, in 1986, talking about terrorists as well, predicted that we would be challenged by an event that local law enforcement couldn't take care of. And who is responsible if a bomb or other weapon gets into the country? In essence, what he and others have asked over time is, should this trained, armed, patriotic, ready-to-serve group be spectators? This is a real question. On one hand, old feelings about standing armies that go back to... They didn't want barracks in Philadelphia. We didn't want to quarter troops riled by having to quarter British troops in Boston. The liberties of Rome proved the final victim to her military triumph. So said James Madison, who also noted that standing armies brought frequent infringements on their rights. And there are real concerns. On March 10th, 2009, a gunman goes on a shooting spree. 28-year-old Michael Kenneth McLendon. He starts with five family members. His mother, his grandmother, and then kills four others and himself. That's what we know now. In the confusion, it wasn't clear. Could this be an event with multiple shooters? Is this a terrorist attack? It was spreading across one town, a one-town's police department, into two towns. The Sheriff's Department in this small county asked for assistance. They're near a military base, and troops from nearby Fort Rucker were deployed to the streets of Sampson, Alabama. The soldiers directed traffic and guarded a makeshift morgue. In the end, rather than getting medals, the soldiers from Fort Rucker were investigated by the Army Inspector General, who found that the use of soldiers in this 2009 action violated the Pase Comitatus Act. The report said that while the intention of the men were to be a good neighbor, nevertheless, some administrative action was taken against the officer. The action was unnamed, and he was unnamed in the report. It's interesting because um, you're seeing some Pase Comitatus discussion, particularly with the Trump talking about sending troops to um, the Mexican border, and it does come up from time to time in various other things. I also had had a question before any of that happened from Jonathan Nichols, a listener who had served in the military, and he asked about a case where soldiers helped nearby residents in a fire, and would that be covered? And PCA does generate some hot talk on Twitter because uh, I think people fear that someone that they don't like, let's say, uh, you know, whoever is president at the time, We'll use the military against them, we'll use the military to restrict their rights. We have the same fears that the Constitutional Convention had. Still, I don't think anyone can see that saving human beings from a fire would count as any violation of passe comitatis. I think that's that's pretty obvious and you know there wasn't too much discussion about that the article that I saw back at that time. But but Jonathan, thanks for listening. And thanks for asking the question. I apologize I couldn't get it into the past questions episode. I have a few questions and I'll get them over the course of this year. Um you were no doubt careful with good reason. You as a veteran are subject or were subject to not only the PCA, but also to the Department of Defense's codes surrounding that. So Congress can pass a law and saying no one's allowed to use the military on American soil like this, without authorization or for some action that's covered in the Constitution. And that's one thing. But if you're in the military, you're subject to the military's rules. So you've still got a lot to worry about in terms of not violating codes. Because the codes that the military, the Department of Defense, throughout history, the standards for getting you into administrative or military code trouble, have throughout history always been greater than the standards for getting you into legal trouble, where no one has been convicted under this act. For instance, the Navy and the Marines were not in the original language of Pase Comitadas, and it was discussed in Congress during the enactment of this bill. They were not included in the language, despite discussion in the legislative debate. However, the American military has always concluded that they were included, and so has acted as if. The posse comitatus is not gone as uh, some I think, but it isn't what it used to be. It's been adjusted over time, and the conception of it has been adjusted. During the insurrection at Wounded Knee, where American Indian movement activists took over the town, there was assistance from the military that was provided. And in a court case, Court ruled that that assistance from the military did not constitute a violation. Also, in the 1980s, during the infiltration of drugs into the United States, particularly in South Florida, some of the killings that were occurring—not in just in Colombia anymore, but in Miami—law enforcement asked for more tools, and exceptions were added to the Posse Comitatus Act in 1982. That allowed for military assistance in the interdiction of drugs and in 1989 that extended that even more that allowed the military to take over an operation to to intercept drugs the in fact the John Warner Defense Authorization Act of 2007 allowed the president to use armed forces without a request for state assistance in the case of natural disasters or major emergencies. They're thinking of 9-11. They're thinking of Katrina at that point. Later, a bipartisan group, Democrats and Republicans, start a movement to repeal that. Kit Bond, Republican from Missouri, says, we do not need to make it easy for a president to declare martial law. And Section 1068 repeals the language from 2007. If we're talking about posse comitatus, we got to address a couple minor issues. First of all, often when Congress gives the Department of Defense new powers, such as their use in drug interdictions, you know, the Department of Defense, which during the Reagan administration opposed that change, can drag their feet or simply not adjust their own codes to reflect what Congress has offered them no one in american history has ever been convicted of violating law now we we mention administrative actions but no one has been convicted of violating laws because so uh the linguistics it says whoever willfully uses the military it has to be willful use the law does not or cannot apply to the president himself as written congress cannot fine nor can it imprison the president as much as, uh, from time to time, it would like to. But it does reflect a sense of what Congress wants. It gives you the sense of what Congress wants. It gives you the sense to what people might see as abhorrent. It was occurring, say, the military out on the highways... In Connecticut or California, issuing speeding tickets and searching cars on the like. If an actual invading army was to come through, let's take it away a little bit from the recent example. (laughs) Let's say they were, you know, that we knew that there was a force from Russia coming through Canada. I mean, at what point are you not going to bring the military out and have them start to perform some functions? So, Obviously, somewhere between very extreme examples lies what PCA is, is trying to cover. If there's an actual violation of passe comitatis, there's several steps. And one is it's subject to the Department of Defense refusing, right? I mean, president orders Department of Defense to do something. Either Jim Mathis or officials within the Department of Defense say, no, we're not going to do that obviously those are all people that work for the president can be fired and so you can go through that whole circle mathis works for the president then you could be subject to a court injunction that says stop the troops this is a violation of law you could be subject to a new act of congress which might amend pca and may forbid such a use and then have a possible court injunction or fight or refusals you know start the rounds over again it's also obviously subject to the normal ways presidents are always held accountable. Public opinion. Now, we know in this particular case, this particular president, he was fairly comfortable operating on a the low approval rating as measured by traditional methods. Just a few newspaper editorials won't you know, stop him from doing something. I do think in this case, in the particular situation, the issue of posse is you're going to get a new set of criticism. You've already seen a little bit of it. Military and ex-military, who are going to reject an excessive use of troops. Then there's elections, of course. Everyone coming up, and of course, impeachment is always available for Congress. And a perceived violation of pase comitatus could certainly be worked into articles of impeachment by a House and then sent to the Senate for possible conviction. So, if you look at the most recent thing occurring, uh, you can see objections from the military. There's some informal, apparently, requests between the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Services. Don't ask us for too much, so we don't have to say no. You see a a big difference between some of the political rhetoric and what's going on on the ground. But there are troops uh, going to various border points. Uh, It's being dubbed Operation Faithful Patriot. Includes military, police, pilots, engineers in the area from November 5th to December 15th, um, California, Arizona, Texas, according to the Customs and Border Protection Chief. Troops will mostly be in bases for training and deploy when they're needed. Troops at the border will be armed, but legally only able to assist U.S. border officials by doing things like helping transport agents, and providing emergency medical care to those who need it. What's the legal standard used to support all this? You're still going back mostly to wounded knee. So the tests used by courts now to determine whether the military forces have been used improperly in violation of PCA uh, are a couple. And they go back to that incident. Whether civilian law enforcement officials made a direct active use of military investigators... To execute the law, whether the use of the military pervaded the activities of the civilian officials, or whether the military was used so as to subject citizens to the exercise of military power, which was regulatory, prescriptive, or compulsory in nature. One of the things I said to Jonathan Nichols when he gave the example of uh, the military base and then, you know, they were helping residents in a fire that was next door. And I said, absolutely, of course. So we we not only should allow that, but salute the use of the military in such situation. But what if they started directing traffic? What if they started telling people where to go, closing off buildings nearby because they might go on fire? Under what authority would they do that? That's where I think you're going to be subject to questions. During the Oklahoma City bombing prosecution, uh, the Justice Department had to determine whether Army personnel could search the desert where Timothy McVeigh was thought to have left a duffel bag. I mean, there, this was a person who just exploded a federal building. There could have possibly been more damage. There is some concern that he had mined the area. Now, are you going to send regular law enforcement in there? No. So the Justice Department concluded that the Army had the expertise... And could help and assist in this purpose, which started to get closer to a military purpose. That's the line and determinations that I think you're going to see justice departments and courts use in this issue. Um, there's certainly situations where troops being sent to the border could be valid. Uh, you know that 2006. George W. Bush ordered 6,000 federalized National Guard troops to California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. You know, so this has been done before. The real question is the amount of soldiers needed, the size of the operation, and, you know, if it's really just support task, why is the number 15,000? These are valid questions. Is it something that the president's using as political rec- rhetoric? And and using military for that purpose. These are valid political questions and debates that Americans can engage in. But it shouldn't be said too quickly that just there's never any use of uh, American military and American soil. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Don't forget about the Vice President's Podcast and uh, sign up for that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. And, you know, uh, a, a review on such a new show is always helpful. Thanks for listening.